Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Chao Wang. He is a crypto investor. He's a partner at DeFi Alliance. Previously, he was head of product at Masari. Uh, So he is somebody that I've been wanting to get on the podcast for a long time. So this is a big deal for me and uh, I hope for all of you as well. And so welcome, Chao. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Diana, for having me. Of course. Before we dive into DeFi Alliance and all the things that you've worked on, I want to know a little bit more about your crypto background and how you got exposed to crypto in the first place. When was it? What was it about crypto that piqued your interest? And how, how did you start learning about it? Yeah, back in the day, I was uh, I was a trader. The kind of trading I did was, uh, you know, very quantitative, highly technical, like it's, it's sort of at the intersection of finance and technology. So something like Bitcoin naturally drew my attention. In the very early days, uh, I think it might be as early as 2012. You know, one day I just saw some news on Bloomberg on the Bloomberg terminal that said like, you know, some asset just crashed like 80% within a day or something along those lines. I was like, what kind of asset is this? There was something about the volatility of the market that, that really drew my, my my attention. So that's how I first learned about Bitcoin. But the, the nature of, of Bitcoin itself is such that, you know, it's also in the middle of this Venn diagram between finance and, and, and tech, I was just naturally very interested uh, in this kind of stuff. And I said to myself, okay, this looks really interesting. And if it succeeds, it'll probably do me uh, 100x, 1000x. But it's probably going to zero. But the expected value is it was worth an investment in the very early days. So I took a chance and it worked out. And obviously, you know, 2014 was Ethereum. I took a chance on Ethereum also because... Vitalik and I went to the same school, although I'm four years older than him. Uh, just wanted to support someone who uh, who also went to Waterloo. Also worked out pretty well, so got lucky a couple times. Uh, but you know, I, I've I've been intellectually, you know, just fascinated about crypto as a whole for almost ten years now. So it's been quite the journey. So I'm curious, at what point did you go from you know like this is a huge risk I'm taking, like this if it goes well I'll be really well off, but it's probably going to zero. When did you go from that mentality to like, no, like I'm actually confident that we're like up only in the long term? This is a really good question. In my mind, I made a distinction between Bitcoin and everything else because the the nature of the two were very different. That inflection point with Bitcoin was maybe during the 2015, 2016 bear market. I said to myself, if this thing doesn't die, I think... Um, the lending effect is going to be strong enough for it to really survive in the, in the long run. But with everything else, including Ethereum, it was probably 2017, 2018, when there was truly a an organic community of develop, developers built on Ethereum. Obviously, back in the day, like back in 2017, there was a lot of ICO bullshit and all that stuff, like a lot of scamming and stuff like that. But there was a, an organic uh, community of, of really strong developers built on Ethereum. And obviously, I didn't know where Ethereum was, was going. DeFi really became a thing in 2018, 2019, 2020. But back in 2017, 
it was still very early. I didn't know where, where Ethereum was going to go. But the fact that you have this large group of developers, really strong developers building on one platform is a really good sign in the long run. So for me, like, you know, Bitcoin was 2015 and, and Ethereum like 2017. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to be talking a lot about DeFi Alliance. So let's preface this by talking about what DeFi is for people listening who are maybe new to this. Uh, like you said, DeFi didn't really become a thing until 2018. And so uh, like, I'm, I'm curious too, from your standpoint, before 2018, before DeFi was a thing, what was it about Bitcoin and crypto in general that drew your attention because I think nowadays like everybody is interested in it, you know, because of DeFi and the possibilities with that. But back then there weren't really any real life use cases that the average person could imagine. So what was it about that? And then like how, as it shifted into DeFi, how did your attitude towards crypto shift as well? The narratives around Bitcoin and Ethereum have not really changed since the since day one, basically. So, you know, in the very early days on Bitcoin Talk, um, people were talking about Bitcoin one day becoming this digital goal, right? Like that was like back in 2010, 2011. Uh, that narrative actually never changed. It just took 10 years for that to happen. And also interestingly for Ethereum, in the Ethereum white paper, I remember that very clearly. Vitalik um, said Ethereum was going to be used for uh, three things. And DeFi was one of them. Uh, DAO was the second thing. And the third thing was something, something really, I couldn't remember exactly, but it was something related to NFTs. So, and, and that was 2014. So, so like that was such a prescient, like, you know, vision from, from Vitalik's part. But, you know, these narratives have never changed. It just took a long time to, to really, you know, reel in uh, the developers and the users. Yeah, that's totally fair. That guy though, he's, Best fortune teller out there, <laughs> predicting exactly. that stuff in 2014. So explain to the newbies then, what is DeFi, somebody that's totally new to the space, decentralized finance, what is it? You know, obviously it has the word finance in it, so, you know, it provides some financial products. But the way it's different from, uh, you know, the, the kind of traditional finance products that you're used to is that you as the user really have control over your funds, uh, your decisions, and uh, no one else can really censor you. No one else can tell you, okay, you're, this money that, that you're supposed to own, you cannot make a wire transfer because the, the amount is too large or because the, the destination is some, has some potentially you know, KYC ML issues. Um, you really own your own decisions and, and money. So that, that's one thing that's really interesting about, about finance is, is the freedom and, and the control. The second thing that's interesting for me is um, the reduction of friction between uh, one product from moving from one product to another. So, for instance, in the traditional finance uh, world, if you have some money in, like, I don't know, in Chase, right, and you want to move it to uh, interactive brokers uh, to, to invest in stocks, it takes a long time to really move the funds. You need to get approval from Chase, and then it takes like maybe 24 hours. Uh, one business day to get the money moved to to interactive brokers, and then it takes another I don't know a few hours for interactive brokers to really approve it, and then you can start investing. Um, with DeFi, that reduction that, that friction is drastically removed, and basically the the, the only latency as a user that, that as a user to have is you know the block time, right? Um, so you can move very easily from Uniswap to Aave, for instance. 
from a user experience point of view, that's 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 really that's a massive. That's a well over ten x improvement. That's the second interesting thing about about DeFi. The third one I would say is. Again, like all these things are related. The third thing is uh, the composability between the various different uh, different products. So you can easily build one product on top of another. So for instance, you could possibly you know combine Uniswap and, and Aave in a way that you you borrow Aave to or you borrow some funds from Aave to sell it on Uniswap, and that's basically a synthetic like uh, short selling, right? And you can do that in a way um, that's entirely permissionless. Because the developer interfaces in DeFi or in crypto in general is fully permissionless. It's fully open. Anyone can build on top of them. You know, if you take an analogy in a traditional finance world, uh, again, if you want to build something on top of interactive brokers, they have APIs for you to build on, but you can't. You don't really. You don't really own the interfaces. So interactive brokers can say, um, you know, one day they can say you no longer have access to an interface. And all the work you've done in the past is gone. So that, that's another really interesting, really interesting thing about, about DeFi. Yeah, for sure. Those, those are three excellent points. And so with all of the benefits that DeFi can bring about, what do you see as being the major roadblocks or challenges to widespread adoption? Why aren't we all using DeFi yet? For me, there are mainly two reasons. One of them is, I would say, is solvable. The other one is going to be very challenging. The solvable one is uh, is the tech. For me, it's really a matter of time. Uh, one of the reasons why it's not being used for everybody right now is because, um, you know, because of the fees, because of the latency of interacting with the blockchain, because of you know some of the friction with installing a crypto wallet, you know, getting used to it. Um, the the tech, for me, is only a matter of time, and it comes with education. The more we as a community, as an industry, uh, do a better job at educating, the more developers will join us to build better products, the more users will join us. That is just a matter of time. The other one is more challenging, is really the final boss, which is regulations. At the end of the day, all this stuff that we're building in crypto, not just DeFi, like everything in crypto that we're building so far, anything that's finance related um, is a war between the incumbents in this new, you know, community. It, it's it's a, a war for, for power, right? It's going to get really nasty at some point, and it's already getting a little bit, you know, all the regulators around the world are looking at uh, DeFi right now. They can't kill DeFi because of the decentralized nature, but they can create some regulations that make it very hard for the user to use. They can add uh, friction to this whole system. And that will in turn create bad user experience. So we need to do a better job at educating uh, regulators, like explaining why it's fundamentally interesting and different and probably better than traditional finance, uh, at least part of it, uh, and make sure that the, the regulations that will eventually come down will be favorable, uh, that will be good for, for innovation in general. Why do you think regulators are so resistant to DeFi? Uh, very honestly, I think part of that is just the, the social pressure. Um, historically, there have been quite a few regulators. I won't name names, but when they're in office, uh, they are very much, you know, sort of anti-DeFi or anti-crypto in general. But the moment they leave the office, 
they're going to join like the, the private sector. And in fact, a lot of them join you know, the crypto industry. And all of a sudden they make 180 uh, turn and, and just you know, become uh, you know, one of the most, uh, I guess, vocal evangelists for, for this industry. So really like part of that is, is just the peer pressure and the social pressure. And um, we can do, we can help with that problem by also, you know, again, like educating the masses, uh, doing a better job at uh, explaining why this technology is, is interesting. Yeah, for sure. Do you see the U.S. or Canada or North America being the front runners in terms of leading the charge and implementing and enforcing regulations that are favorable to crypto? Or do you see this happening first in other parts of the world? As far as the G7 is concerned, uh, the United States is definitely, uh, you know, the front runner. Uh, everyone else will look up to the United States. So as far as the G7 is concerned, I think the G7 will be sort of separate from the rest of the world in terms of regulations. Um, you know, most notably you have FATF, which is, uh, you know, the financial task force that's um, uh, led by, by the G7. Um, and in the U.S., it's FinCEN that implements uh, the, uh, the recommendations of FATF. And uh, if the FATF makes some recommendations that is not unfavorable to DeFi, you know, there's a good chance that, that FinCEN might implement some of them. And everyone else might look up to, to, to the FinCEN as well. But we've seen uh, with Bitcoin, for instance, uh, that, that you know, over the last month or so, uh, we have countries like El Salvador, adopting Bitcoin as um, the legal tender. We, we're starting to see a sort of bifurcation around the world uh, from the G7, uh, or maybe maybe not even a bifurcation, maybe a trifurcation. So I think there might be, there might be three economic regions uh, ultimately when it comes to crypto. There's the G7, there's those emerging uh, economies like El Salvador, and then there's maybe a world centered around China. Um, the, the the broader Asia the broader Asia Asian economy, um, so maybe there there will be a trifurcation uh, between these three regions. But everyone's playing this sort of uh, game theory, uh, where um, you know if if the United States uh, start pushing for aggressive regulations, unfavorable regulations, uh, other two of the three other uh, regions might push for something more favorable in order to get a head start uh, in this crypto economy. And we've, we've seen that with, with Bitcoin so far. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting analysis and prediction. We'll have to see how it plays out. So I want to talk about DeFi Alliance. Um, that DeFi Alliance is, a for anyone who's not familiar, a DeFi accelerator that has produced you know projects, Web3 projects like I think Xerox Labs, Set Labs, Synthetics, to name a few. And there's many more besides that too. So I'm curious, like, how did you initially get connected with DeFi Alliance and decide that this was what you wanted to work at? You know, we started DeFi Alliance as something sort of uh, pretty casual. Uh, it was uh, a few months before the DeFi summer of 2020 started, uh, which started with the compound uh, liquidity mining. But um, in the very early, in the, in the first few months of 2020, we, we saw um, a need uh, from DeFi projects to acquire institutional liquidity. So they had a little bit of you know, retail liquidity back in the day, but 
they're looking for some of the uh, you know largest market makers around the world to provide liquidity on, on their platform, especially the the DEXs and and, and decentralized uh, lending platforms. Um, so the likes of you know Zero uh, X, Kyber, uh, Synthetics, etc. And then on the other side, um, you know myself uh, being based in Chicago, we saw an opportunity. Uh, to or we, we saw a need from the traditional market makers, you know, some of the largest market, most successful market makers in the world, like Jump Trading, uh, DRW, CNT. Um, they have been in crypto since the very early days, since as early as 20, 2013, 2014. So they've always been like ahead of the herd. Um, and they were very interested in, in DeFi. They were learning about DeFi. And they, they wanted to get in touch with the DeFi platform, the DeFi projects to, to basically... Uh, get more, uh, you know, deeply integrated with the DeFi project. So we saw an opportunity to basically uh, bring, uh, bridge the gap between these two worlds. So that's how the DeFi one started. We started as something like super, like casual. You know, we, we did an accelerator program. Uh, the first cohort was super, super casual, like laid back between like these two groups of people. Basically, the, the market makers, they provide mentorship to uh, those DeFi projects that, that I mentioned before. Um, but over time, it just evolved into something bigger and bigger. You know, the, the DeFi projects wanted more. They wanted, you know, guidance on regulations. They wanted help with token economics, with product design, with smart contract auditing, with hiring, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it turns out that there's a lot of people who can help with these DeFi projects within the DeFi community. So, you know, really the DeFi we're building is sort of a network, a hub of, uh, you know, people who need support and those who have the expertise in the network to provide the support. Gotcha. And so now at the, at the stage that it's evolved into today, how do you decide, you know, like which companies to take into the accelerator program? Like what's your thinking process around that? So ideally, you know, we have uh, a few theses in DeFi, you know, a few markets that we think are going to get really big. So ideally the, the team that's building a new project should be in one of these areas. It's an ideal condition, but it's not necessary because, you know, the other condition that we have or the other thing that we look at is really the, the strength of the team. So um, the strength of the team, that, that, that's a necessary condition for us. Uh, this, like the, 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 the more important criteria between the two. So ideally, we have these two. We, we have, like the team has both of these things. But, um, you know, uh, if like, for instance, uh, over the last few months, there have been a lot of teams uh, building stable coins and building like decentralized exchanges. Uh, for me, these are some of the areas that are very hard to compete with incumbents. But we still support uh, supported a bunch of teams building in, in these areas as well, even though we don't really have a strong thesis in, in these two markets. If that makes sense. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. So, looking at your portfolio, you have you know so many big names to come out of DeFi Alliance. Is it like a, a you know when I was thinking about it, I was like chicken or the egg problem. Like, which one came first? Was it like these projects were already bound to be successful and they just landed in DeFi Alliance's lap, or do, what? Or do you guys have some secret sauce where you can make all these early stage projects like wildly successful? Um, I wouldn't say, you know, as an investor myself, I, I don't want to. Like I don't want to take any credit. Um, you know, ninety nine point nine nine percent of of the success uh, for the DeFi projects or for or for startups in general, the, the founders or the team should take all the credit. 
uh, all we provided is a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of education, a little bit of uh, network. There's no secret sauce. It's all it all boils down to hard work by by the founders. There's obviously a little bit of chicken egg problem. You know, we we only select the the best founders, um, but you know we also provide a little bit of, a little bit of help. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it's really up 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 to the to the team. Yeah. So for somebody that's you know maybe working on an early stage DeFi product right now, what is your best advice for them? Like that they have to do in the early days or they have to make sure they don't do in the early days in order to succeed. Yeah, there are uh, very uh, there are a few mistakes that I've seen teams do in the early in the beginning. Uh, one, for instance, is they, they scale to they scale the team too fast before reaching product market fit. Um, for me, you don't need a huge team. You don't need a team of more than three, four people. Like in fact, you can do pretty well with with just two co-founders before reaching product market fit. Because the more teams you have, the more team members you have, the more interpersonal connections, the, the harder it is to manage the team, the harder it is to, to make everybody productive. You really, you really only need two 10x people, like whether, engin- whether it's engineers or you know, biz dev or marketing um, person. So don't scale too fast before you reach product market fit. Once you reach product market fit, you can, you can hire more people you know, to build like these incremental features to acquire users, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing I would say is, um, you know, the founders need to be more confident about themselves. Uh, obviously, you know, you, you, you want to uh, get feedback from the investors, but really at the end of the day, you as the founder, you are the domain expert. The investors don't know more than you do about this particular product that you're building. You spend all your day on it you ha- you have way more information than 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 the than the investor does, so you really need to trust your own uh, instinct. Obviously, get you know product feedback, etc., from from the investors, but you know really rely on your own instinct. I think the investors what the investors are good at is, uh, you know, they understand the overall market better because they see more things. Uh, they can tell you how big the market that you are you are operating in. Uh, how big that market is. So that's one useful piece of information for you or area of support. And the other thing is really the network. So the, the, the investors talk to people all day so they can connect you with um, you know, the, the best uh, or some of the most helpful people in this industry. So I would say these are the two main things that investors are, are, are helpful with. But other than that, like you really need to trust uh, yourself. And three, you know, I've seen some uh, I guess uh, a little bit of uh, uh, pre, uh, I guess uh, over optimization on the regulation side of things, or premature optimization on the uh, reg- regulation side of things. Um, I don't obviously you need to take regulations very seriously, uh, but don't spend way too much time at the beginning. Um, you know you want to make sure that you, you don't get into trouble, but you also don't want to over engineer. Your organization, your legal entity—it's—it's it's very time-consuming. Uh, same thing, uh, same thing with like fundraising. It's very, very time-consuming. You want to focus on building a product, a really good product first. Um, another thing I would—I don't—I don't think everybody necessarily agree with me, but uh, on this one, but you know, I think you should prioritize product over token economics initially. 
the token economics is a way to acquire users. It's not the product itself. If you don't have a good product, then you issue a bunch of tokens. Like if, if you want to do some, some kind of liquidity mining program, it's just a waste of money because you have no product to show. You really need to make sure that, that you have product market fit first before using token economics to, to acquire users. So you know, these are some of the things that I've seen so far, but I'm, I'm probably missing some other things as well. Yeah, no, that that's a lot already. That's um, I think that's really helpful stuff for anybody listening who's working on building out a DeFi project. So I'm curious too, like looking at the broader DeFi ecosystem, what are some DeFi projects that you personally are especially bullish on right now? I guess you know most of the uh, the largest uh, DeFi projects by market cap. I'm bullish generally on on most of them. Um, they've you know I, I think the market is fairly uh, rational in terms of pricing them. Uh, they found product market fit and they will probably continue to grow with uh, the rest of the ecosystem. Um, so anything, uh, you know, some of the largest products in, in, in the decentralized exchange uh, sector or in the um, uh, lending sector, um, stable coins, you know, Maker is doing, is gonna, probably going to do really well even if a lot of people hate them. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, but these are some of the areas where the incumbents have really, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to outcompete uh, the, the incumbents. Um, there are a couple of new areas that are about to take off uh, due to a variety of reasons. Uh, probably the most interesting one uh, in terms of uh, total addressable market is derivatives. Uh, we've seen how the centralization, how big the centralized exchanges are in terms of like their, their derivative uh, volume. It's way bigger than uh, their spot volume. Um, so if you build the same, sort of the same products in DeFi, uh, you can probably do just as well uh, because you can offer better user experience than centralized exchanges uh, when it comes to like you know, onboarding, withdrawal, like user control, freedom, all these things that I mentioned before. And it's only about to take off right now because uh, of the scaling solutions that, that we're about to roll out, uh, whether it's layer twos on Ethereum or, you know, Solana, Polkadot, all these uh, Ethereum competitors. Um, and, and the reason for that is derivative traders are very sensitive to latency. They're very sensitive to fees. They're very sen sensitive to throughput. Um, and all these things can be solved with better scaling technologies. Um, but, you know, for me personally, the, the kind of area that I'm really passionate about is the products that really bridge DeFi to the real world. The, the, the kind of products that people can use, um, you know, in their day-to-day -day or you know, payment, for instance. Or, uh, you know, if people can use some of their real world assets as collateral to borrow money, to start a venture, that kind of stuff. The more products that we have that bridge DeFi in the real world, the more uh, resistant to uh, unfavorable regulations this industry will become. Because when regulators see this, uh, you know, a lot of average user, you know, the average users use DeFi products, um, they will be more willing to roll out favorable uh, Regulations, so I think that is really important. And the other thing that's really important, I guess, for investors at least, is this sort of circular lo circular logic between the value accrual and the fundamentals of DeFi. So, um, 
there's a little bit of uh, reflexivity, meaning like if the price goes up, fundamentals go up, price goes, goes down, fundamentals sort of go down with it. And that is because, you know, if the price goes up, there's more speculators coming to DeFi, they will use DeFi more, and then the earnings, the revenues for the DeFi protocols go up, and then the fundamentals go up. But the opposite is also true. And the reason for that is right now, by and large, DeFi is used for speculation. And ideally, we want to create more products that are used for non-speculative usage. So... Yeah, for sure. And so I'm curious, like, where do you see the DeFi market going in the next year? And I guess like some of that depends on if you think, you know, are we are we officially in a, a long term bear market now or is this sort of just a short term market adjustment? Like, where are we now? And then, you know, where do you what do you see happening in the next year in DeFi that you think is like notable? Yeah, for, for better or worse, uh, DeFi is going to be correlated with or DeFi is going to be primarily driven by Bitcoin and to to a lesser extent, um, Ethereum. We're, we're seeing a little bit of uh, decoupling, but uh, but Bitcoin is still the driver of, of the entire crypto market. So um, I don't think the bull market is over. Um, you know, if the same thing happened in 2017, I would have said it, it was over. But we're in a very different macro environment right now. There's just so much cash sitting on the sideline. Um, for me, that is the most important difference between now and 2017 is the amount of money printing when it comes to like a one-year time horizon. On a 10-year time horizon, I don't think that really matters. Uh, the innovation will, will continue to happen and DeFi will probably do really well on a 10-year time horizon. But when it comes to a one-year time horizon, it boils down to money printing, it boils down to Bitcoin and to a lesser extent, uh, Ethereum. I don't think the bull market is over. I think we'll be higher a year from now. Than, than today. Um, and I think because of the macro conditions, because of the involvement with institutions, and by the way, institutions who have bought Bitcoin, um, they're starting to look at uh, Ethereum and DeFi. Um, if the market didn't crash that hard uh, a month ago, they would probably be in DeFi right now. And there's also another types of institutions who don't get Bitcoin, who don't get the digital gold narrative they have a much uh, better, uh, much easier time wrapping their head around DeFi because of, because of the productive asset nature of, of, of DeFi, because these assets actually generate revenue. Uh, they're also interested in, in DeFi. So um, I think over the next year or so, it's going to take a while, but some of these institutions are going to get into DeFi. And because of this involvement from institutions, I think we're going to go higher. And I think this will be a rather long, uh, longer bull market than the last few. Gotcha. And then speaking of 10 years, where do you see us being in 10 years? Is DeFi just officially called just finance? Like, is anybody even using the term DeFi anymore? I think uh, it'll take longer than 10 years. I think what we're building is really a generation-long kind of effort. I think, by and large, right now, DeFi is still being used as a toy, uh, or, uh, or uh, you know, a toy for, for the wealthy, for better or for worse. You know, that's, the, the same is true for every groundbreaking technology in human history. Everything that the average person uses today started off as something that's being used as, as a toy by, by the wealthy, be it computer, be it, you know, smartphone. Um, I think DeFi right now is still in that stage. And it's going to take a while 
for us to build better scaling, to educate the average user, and ultimately um, to uh, get better regulations. So I, you know, I'm, optimi- I'm optimistic in the long run, but I think it's going to take longer than, than people expect. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. All right, and then last thing about DeFi Alliance, anything new and exciting happening for DeFi Alliance in the next year that you can tease or get people excited about? Um, you know, obviously, we're, we keep looking for some of the brightest, uh, brightest founders. Uh, I personally think, you know, as I said, like five minutes ago, I think, I think some of the institutions are getting into D- DeFi. We're trying to bridge. You know, originally, you know, a year ago, we, we bridged the gap between DeFi projects and some of the most... I guess adventurous, you know, market makers from the traditional traditional finance back uh, world, but I think what we're going to do over the next couple of years or so is really to bridge the gap between DeFi and some of the, uh, I guess, you know, fintech or even you know Wall Street banks that type of uh, financial institutions. And if I were going to launch a, a an institutional event, uh, I guess mid next month. To really educate uh, some of the largest Wall Street uh, banks and you know financial services companies about DeFi, so we're going to try to bridge the gap between the two. For me, that's really exciting. There is a narrative in DeFi that that says you know DeFi is going to eat traditional finance, tradfi. Um, I don't think that's the right framing. I think DeFi is not going to eat their lunch, but rather DeFi is going to to provide a platform of of open innovation for everyone to build on top of. So in the back end, we're going to have DeFi protocols, such as Compound, Aave, Uniswap, Sushi, et cetera. And on the front end, we're going to have traditional finance uh, companies building user interfaces that are possibly you know, familiar with the average user, for the average user. And really, they become this distribution, this really large distribution channel for, for DeFi into the real world, into the average uh, user base. So. That, that's how I see DeFi and, and how the DeFi lines, the, the kind of role that DeFi lines plays. Nice. I love it. All right. So I end every podcast episode with a segment called Explain Your Tweet. This is where I dig through your Twitter and I pull out some interesting or cryptic tweets. For you, there are way too many. Your tweets are just like gold. I actually like that you tweet about not just crypto, but it seems like you also tweet a lot about like health, maybe something you care about. Um, and then just other random stuff too. So like here, I've got one from July 11th, 2021. You said, Godspeed, Sir Richard Brandon, 21st century will be the century of space exploration and humanity becoming a multi-planetary species, the century of the metaverse and the universe. So are, are you um, a, a bullish on aliens? You know, a lot of people can probably agree that there's something out there other than humans that we're, we're not cognizant of at uh, at the moment, but how do you? What's like your view on what that is? I mean, I'm definitely bullish on uh, on on aliens, but uh, fundamental, like maybe taking a step back, you know, I, I guess over the last few decades, we've really moved from this world of atoms into bits. You know, software eating is eating the world, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, nowadays the word tech really means software, but a few decades ago, tech means used to mean a lot of different things. It used to mean bio, it used to mean uh, software, computers, but it used to mean also you know, space exploration, right? But I think we might, the 21st century, we might move back into this world of, of atoms. And that's not to say bits are, 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 going, are, are going to be less important. It's going to be more important, but 
ultimately the bits will enable a lot of new innovation in, 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 in the world of atoms. Like all these, for instance, experimental physics uh, stuff, you know, they leverage a lot of the software that, that, that we have built over the last uh, few decades. All these automations, right, in the real world, uh, robotics, they, they use some of the um, artificial intelligence, um, leverage a lot of the advances in computing that, that we had over the last few decades. So um, I, I am bullish in the world of atoms in general for, for, this cent- for, for the next century. Uh, and in particular, space exploration is something I'm, I'm super excited about. Like growing up, I just wanted to become a uh, like an astronomer. I was really fascinated by astrophysics. So um, yeah, it's just something I'm, I'm uh, curious about intellectually. It's not too late. You could still go be an astronaut after DeFi Alliance. That's right. <laughs> okay, cool. And then this next tweet I have, this is from July 4th, 2021. You said... Woke up to the shocking news of the DD ban in China. People are interpreting this news in ways that best fit their own bias. But according to Chinese netizens, it's a story of Cold War where DD leaked data of citizens and roads to the U.S. in order to go IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. Cold War might be too strong of a term. Should have said something like national security. Uh, I'm just curious, like your thoughts on, I guess, China in general um, as it relates to crypto, uh, but like also on this specifically as well. Um, China is a very complex topic. I don't live in China. I, you know, I, I left China when I was like 11, 12. Obviously, I have some family in China. It's a very complex topic. I can't speak for everyone. I don't have a, an unbiased view. But the way I think about China when it comes to crypto is that um, the, the crackdown on miners was a little bit surprising to me. Because historically, over the last few years, you know, obviously every year there are some China bans Bitcoin kind of news. But in general, China has been neutral to, to crypto, I would say. The, the, the thing that, re- that China really cares about is not, um, it's not really crypto or Bitcoin. It's really uh, the speculative fervor uh, you know, among the, uh, the retail traders. Um, it's not a coincidence that you hear about China ban you always hear about China ban during the, the last few innings of, of, the, of the bull market. It's not a coincidence at all. It's because of the speculations. That's what China really cares about. But this crackdown on miners, that really caught me off guard because uh, you have an industry in which you are really dominant in and you know, w- with a snap of a finger, you destroyed it. So it's it's surprising to me. I don't really know what the motivation is. Maybe it had to do with you know the hundredth birthday of uh, of the CCP. Um, you know they wanted to make sure that there's no no shenanigans before you know the July first uh, birthday. Uh, they want to demonstrate to the country that they're in control, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I don't know where crypto is going in the next few years when it comes to China. I think. Uh, from what I've seen with the founders, um, they are worried. Uh, they're probably, um, you know, either not doing crypto anymore or they're leaving China. They're going to places like Singapore. Um, so uh, there's still a lot of regulatory uncertainty. So I'm, I'm sort of neutral to bearish when it comes to the, the crypto industry in, in China. Gotcha. Makes sense. Okay. And I've got a last tweet for you. This is from July 2nd, 2021. And I actually had quote tweeted this last night and basically said like, 
I agree with this completely, but also there's two sides of the coin. And then I've got I got some comments that were like pretty interesting. So anyway, your tweet is it's a thread. The first one says historically gender, ethnicity, physical appearance and other things you're born with give certain groups of people a massive advantage in the workplace. The gradual shift towards the pseudonymous crypto economy could be a massive equalizing force. Um, and then you kind of just go on to talk about, you know, the benefits of pseudonymity in, you know, that we're seeing in the crypto space right now and how that can sort of like act as a, a leveling of the playing field for all people, regardless of your background or what you look like or whatever. My pushback on that and the pushback that like I got in my comments too on Twitter was like a few things. For me, I think, you know, first of all, like pseudonymity is is not the most like personable or welcoming way to bring people into the space. And so if you see somebody on Twitter, for instance, with, you know, a, a pseudonym as their name and then with not their face as their profile pic, it can be hard to feel like connected to them. So that's like one that's, you know, not the most important thing, but that's one. Um, and then to your point about like equaling the playing field, I think what we're seeing, even with pseudonymity on Twitter, at least, is like people are almost competing with, you know, these like bored apes with their crypto punks with all these like NFT profile pics and it's like, in a sense, even in a pseudonymous world, like there still is this hierarchy of um, like who has the better NFT profile pick, for instance. Yep. So love to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, your, your pushbacks are uh, 100% agree with them. I don't think pseudonymity is strictly better, but it, it does provide a, a nice trade-off. Um, and it's not going to be the equalizing force between everybody. Like it's not going to make everybody equal. But it does provide an opportunity for you know um, the groups of people in the society who have been historically underrepresented or you know underprivileged to have an opportunity to sort of um, level the, the the playing field. It's not going to solve all the problems for sure, but it does provide a, uh, a, a an opportunity. And you know, pseudonymity is not something new, right? Like it existed since since. Even before the internet, but even after the internet, you know, you have things like Reddit, 4chan, like all these social media platforms that uh, allow you to um, to use a pseudonym. But it's really not until crypto that you have really an economy, because before you can use a pseudonym to express your opinions, but you cannot use a pseudonym to really engage in economic activities. And really, it's really crypto that, that helps with that. So I'm, I'm really excited about the, the, the pseudonymous economy over the next few decades. And again, it's going to take a long time. It's gonna, it doesn't happen tomorrow. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, well, thank you so much, Chow, for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time and you know telling us all of your thoughts. I, I Lots of great insights there. And we'll have to see if all of that plays out, plays out to be true, then maybe, who knows, maybe you'll be the next Vitalik, all of you, you Waterloo people just predicting the future of, of the web and the economy. Before you go, Chow, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally. And then also remind people again, you know, if they're interested in joining the next cohort of DeFi Alliance, how can mm -hmm. they get in touch with you and apply to your program and all, all those good things? Always uh, feel free to DM me on, on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is my LinkedIn, basically. Uh, my Twitter handle is QWQIAO, so my initials plus my first name. Um, and then, um, you know, in order to apply for the Define Alliance, go to defineallianceco and you'll find a, a big apply button. So 
feel free to apply and uh, we'll review every single one of the applications. Awesome. Awesome. We will include that in the show notes as well. Thank you again so much, Chow, for being here. Thank you listeners for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. Thank you, Dinah. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.